0: We are uh, in the midst of our Genesis series talking about God's gifts in Genesis, and today we're going to see the gift of election. So I'll read this passage for us today, but I hope that you'll follow along in your own Bible or in your bulletin insert. Genesis 25, I'll begin to read at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. My mother was the baby in her family. There were five of those siblings, and she was the youngest. And then in my family, I'm the baby, which means that I didn't know her parents very well because they were already so old. I can remember what they looked like just barely, And I do remember going to their house as a very small child, but I don't remember anything about the house at all. They died when I was quite young, and her father, John Walton Poole was his name. He was a a carpenter, as I understand it, and built houses for people and anything else they needed cabinets or outbuildings or whatever. And before he died, he had a $5 gold piece and a 2 dollars 5 gold piece that had been passed down through the family for at least a couple of generations, judging uh, by the dates. And he gave the $5 gold piece to his ninth grandchild, a cousin of mine by the name of Brent. And then he gave the 2 dollars 5 gold piece to his last grandchild, which happened to be me. And I don't know why he did that. I've never known. It's one of my most prized possessions. It's dated 1853. It looks like it's never been carried in its life. And, uh, you know, I, I just guess we'll take that mystery with us to the grave because he's long gone from this this world, and so is my mother. So I, I'll never know the answer to that question why other than to say that it belonged to him and he chose to give it to the child that he wanted to have it. Maybe you've received some special gift in your time. Maybe it was from a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle. There seemingly was no rhyme or reason for that gift. Maybe you just felt like you happened to be in the right place at the right time. And then again, if you think about it, maybe you begin to think about maybe there was a reason for that gift. Maybe it was because I was the baby of his baby. Maybe there was some plan as to why you received what you were given. We have a glimpse of some choices that God made in our passage this morning as we read about Isaac and Rebekah and God's gift to them of twin boys that they name Esau and Jacob. Our text starts with the words, These are the generations of Isaac, which means we're about to enter new territory because anytime you see that word or phrase having to do with generations in the book of Genesis, it's a it's a, a method that Moses uses to introduce something new to this story that's being told all through this book of beginnings. In our case today, we're getting ready to be introduced to the next generation of this great nation that God is initiating through Abraham and his offspring after him. We read a moment ago, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That sounds like a story we've heard before in Genesis, doesn't it? Here we see this challenge of barrenness once again, even though God has made this tremendous promise. To Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you many nations. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here they're not able to conceive once again. And the way that sentence reads, it it sounds in our text at least as if God made the choice to grant that prayer right away. And God granted His prayer. But we know that isn't the case because of the last verse in our text where we find out Isaac's age when those babies were born. Can you imagine having twins at age 60? And we know at the beginning of our text he was 40. So you do the math. That's how long they had to wait. That's how long they had to pray. That's how long they had to wonder. Is God going to remain faithful to us the way that he was faithful to Abraham and Sarah before us? With Isaac's wait, we have one verse telling us the challenge. And in the next verse, we find God granting this prayer. There are nine chapters in the book of Genesis detailing everything going on with Abraham and Sarah in the time they're waiting to conceive. And just two verses with Isaac. Is he somehow shortchanged? Well, that could be one way to look at it, but I think because of all of Abraham's hopes and fears and disappointments and discouragements and wonderings, we've already heard all of that before. Do we really need to hear it again? In other words, we've all been there and done that. Something that should be easy in life is not, we find out. And we start quoting Murphy's Law and giving other reasons as to why life disappoints us so often. Here in this story we have Isaac who is the child of the promise and who also benefits from the same covenantal promises as his parents, Abraham and Sarah. And we have Rebecca, a wife from the right people. And yet in this best possible situation, there's this challenge, this problem. No baby. Here we go again. We don't know whether Isaac complained or not. We're not told about those 20 years. But he probably did if he's like you and me. But he also does the most powerful thing he can do and we are told that in this text. He prays to Almighty God. Remember, way back before he grew to be a man, Isaac was a witness to the provision of God. When God saved his life that fateful day when Abraham thought that he was going to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering, Isaac had experienced a faithful God, and he had this same God's promise, and so he himself is faithful in prayer. Though not written yet, He understood the truth of Psalm fifty-five twenty-two, which says, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. We always have to remember that. God is the one who can sustain. He's not just the provider. He's always faithful and He's the one who can sustain us if we cast our cares upon Him. He kept praying. Rebecca kept praying and their prayers were eventually answered to fulfill God's promise. And this is a way in which the story always reminds us that everything in life depends upon God and His graciousness unto us. And once those prayers are answered, we, we find that if we read between the lines, it seems to me Rebecca is having a troubled pregnancy. We've all known people like her. That's a, a, such a scary time for any couple to endure. The text tells us the children struggled within her. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now we know from previous sermons in this series that God had told Abraham, I will make... Of you, many nations, and here we see the first two of those nations named. We see Edom and we see Israel. And these prophetic words from God Himself refer to, among other things, the hostility that will exist between Edom and Israel down through the centuries and to the favored position of Israel above Edom in God's plan of redemption that through Abraham and the nation of Israel will all the nations of the world be blessed. Notice, too, how God shakes things up. He says, the older shall serve the younger. You see, God doesn't always do what we expect He'll do. You know, the older children always have certain perks, we might say. It's always been that way. But yet God doesn't always do what we'll expect Him to do. Just like Jesus doesn't always do what we expect. You remember that story where He curses a fig tree and it's not even in season for figs? Why would He do something like that? Well, he's making a statement, obviously, in that context about uh, Israel and its lack of fruitfulness. But that's just a bizarre thing. And it's just one of those places in Scripture that reminds us that God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't always do what we expect. We see the same thing in the New Testament, Matthew 19, when we read, the first shall be last and the last first. God is free to work His will however He sees fit. Now, as I've said, the law of primogeniture is very old. Yes, we see it in the law in Deuteronomy 21 where the older child is always favored and given more, even the law stipulates if the wife is not favored, if the mother of the child, in other words, is not the favorite wife. But of course the law hasn't been given yet in Genesis 25. But we know this is already an ancient custom because of the passage that follows our text where we see that Esau despises his birthright which is the right to be the primary heir to the family fortune. God has chosen to bless Jacob in a special way even though he's the younger child of the two. We're not told in the text why God goes against convention and custom other than to assume that God is sovereign and He can do as He chooses. This is one of the exact points that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 9 when he uses this passage to talk about how salvation is not because of our works or our actions, but about God's mercy and about God's grace and about God's call in our lives. Since He is in control, since He is Lord and King, He can choose as He sees fit. And I'll quote Romans 9, Verses 11 and following. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works but because of His call, she was told, she meaning Rebecca, the elder will serve the younger. What shall we say then, Paul asks. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What we have to remember here is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we're separated from God. He cannot abide sin. He cannot look upon it. He cannot be in its presence. And it's because of His grace, grace that He's given in Jesus Christ who came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins. That's why we can have a relationship with Him. That's why we give thanks for the choices that He makes, the way He sends His Holy Spirit to warm our hearts and to cause us to see our need for His saving grace. In Galatians 1.15, Paul makes this claim about God's work in his own life when he basically says that God set me apart before I was born and called me through His grace. The prophet Jeremiah is much the same in his first chapter We read that the word of the Lord came to me saying before I formed you in the womb I knew you and before you were born I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Do you ever think about the fact that before you were formed in your mother's womb God knew you? He already had a purpose and a plan for your life. It's much the same way with these twins. They're not only born, but they're called by God. As Walter Brueggemann puts it in his commentary, their destiny is shaped by the one who spoke them into life in the first place. When Jacob and Esau are born, their life is already decisively shaped by this other one to whom their parents pray. Now, if we want to experience this same God, we have to recognize His sovereignty in our lives. We have to see that because He does not change, He has acted the same way in your life and in my life, and He's chosen us and given us the power to become children of God through His Holy Spirit. As Augustine puts it, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. And that's certainly good news. But there's even more good news here. Because we have to remember that not only is God in control, but God is is omniscient, which is a, a fancy way of saying He knows everything. He knows what kind of of rascal Jacob is going to be in his life. He knows that he's going to connive and and try and get everything he can from everybody with whom he comes into contact. God knows he'll trick and connive his way to not only Esau's birthright but also the firstborn's blessing from his father Isaac. In other words, the good news is that God can bring about His purposes in even the most unlikely places and among the most unlikely people. People even like you and me. Maybe you have a brother or sister like Jacob. And if you do, I know that bothers you. And you know, God is sovereign, and God can turn that person's life around and use them for His purposes, even when they're making mistakes in life. Maybe it's a child of yours that's taken the wrong path in life. God can still change them. As He will change Jacob as we see Jacob go through chapters here in the book of Genesis. And it may be that by now some of you might be thinking, but where does free will come into play with all of this? I mean, Barry, the way you're talking today, it's like we have no choice whatsoever. Well, if you read subsequent chapters of Genesis, you'll see that Jacob has plenty of choices and he makes those choices and some of those choices are terrible decisions and some of them are good. But God simply will not let him go. Now, I know we've used the word sovereign a lot today and maybe you're still not sure what I mean by that. We've also talked about election. We've talked about choice. We've talked about... Free will? How does all of this come together and make sense? I once read an illustration out of one of A.W. Tozer's books that I think really speaks to this well. The book is The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is what he says. An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least, he says, a faint picture of sovereignty. He goes on to say, On board the liner are several scores of passengers. These are not in chains, neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, they sleep, they play, they lounge around on the deck, they read books, they talk to one another. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Tozer says, both freedom and sovereignty are present here and they do not contradict each other. So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of "...of those eternal purposes which He purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began." And if you're sitting there in your pew today and thinking, I don't know if I really agree with that man or not, you can see the same thing said in Ephesians 1 by the Apostle Paul when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He destined us in love to be his. His sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Now did you hear that in there? He destined us in love. That means you have a destiny in God's kingdom to the praise of His glorious grace because of God's steadfast and everlasting love poured out upon us in the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to die for us on the cross. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like good news to me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. dear father